Thanks for listening to Downrange. The podcast is absolutely free. But if you want ad-free listening and early access to next week's episodes, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus. For more information, check out tenderfootplus.com. Enjoy the episode. Downrange is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you exchange gift cards, vacations, experiences, donations, or do you focus on enjoying time together? I know I do. Whether or not your family gives gifts during the holidays, you get to define how you give to yourself. And the holidays are a great time to do that. So whether it's by starting therapy, going easy on yourself during the tough moments, or treating yourself to a day of complete rest, remember to give yourself some love this holiday season. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out the brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. In the season of giving, give yourself what you need with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com range today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash range. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Warning. This podcast contains adult content and recreations of battle scenes, including violence, gunshots, explosions, and graphic descriptions, which may be triggering for those with past trauma. Listener discretion is advised. Tenderfoot TV and Telegraph Creative, this is Downrange. I'm your host, Rich Chapa. I served 21 years in the U.S. Army, starting as a private and retiring as a lieutenant colonel. Though I served as a forward observer, a fire support officer, and a commander in Ranger and Airborne units, I also spent a good portion of my career in the Army not on the battlefield. I served in the Pentagon as the Russia country director, Caspian manager, and finally as director of Caucasus Central Asia Policy. Though I am a combat veteran of the Panama, Iraq, and Balkan conflicts, I have spent a good part of my career coordinating from behind the scenes. When people hear Army, they often think battlefield. But there are so many people from so many branches of the government working to make our country and our world a safer, more stable place. In my Pentagon career, I worked as part of what we call the interagency. The interagency is the forum led by the National Security Council where all of the levers of national power are discussed. This includes national security where both myself and our guest would have coordinated. 
That's why I'm very excited to introduce you to Mark Polymeropoulos. Mark served 26 years in the CIA. His story is one about leadership, particularly behind the scenes. He's actually just released a book chronicling his experiences in the CIA and the leadership lessons he's learned along the way. The book is called Clarity in Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the CIA. As you can probably assume, being in the CIA comes with secrecy. Mark, and people like Mark, frequently don't receive a lot of attention for the things they do. But Mark knows the importance of being a good leader, if only to your direct team. Today, he'll tell you about his leadership experiences, what it's actually like to be part of the Central Intelligence Agency, and what Hollywood gets wrong about so-called CIA agents. My name is Mark Polymeropoulos. I served 26 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, and I retired in July of 2019 from the Senior Intelligence Service. I got recruited right out of college. There was a CIA recruiter on campus at Cornell. Only job I've ever had. And I always joke because my dad, who was, you know, of course, he was Greek, didn't always approve of my career choice. There's a long history of the CIA supporting the right wing in the 1970s, and so he was not really thrilled with this, but it's kind of his fault. My dad was a college professor, so each summer we went back to the Greek islands. When I was 10, he took a sabbatical to teach for a year in Algeria. For a long time, was really racked by Islamic fundamentalism, but at the time, it was fairly safe. My mom put me on an airplane, JFK Airport in New York City, alone. Going through Paris, I fly all the way to Algiers, and my dad and I, for one month, drive 2,000 miles to the Sahara Desert. Old Volkswagen minibus, sleeping in desert oases and, and kind of rundown hotels, and I completely fell in love with the Middle East. I thought I was Lawrence of Arabia. It's always the joke with my father and I. It's kind of his fault. He hired you to put me under surveillance. Why? Jeez. Why did he hire you? Don't say anything, Smith. No. No. The CIA is, you know, certainly has this incredible mystique. People think that, you know, everyone is a bunch of, you know, Jason Bournes running around carrying a sidearm and being able to, you know, scale walls. And sometimes you do those things, but very rarely. They look like everyone else. There's going to be CIA officers who are going to your local Safeway or Giant or supermarket, Publix, whatever it's called. You know, I like a good Jason Bourne movie like anyone else, but that really wasn't me. We can say that it was kind of cool, but no, it wasn't. There's a famous bar called the Talibar at the CIA station in Kabul, Afghanistan. If you see a t-shirt that says the Talibar, odds are they probably are, are in the agency, but they're like, you know, anybody else is a cross-section of America. Someone asked me, what's the best trait of a CIA officer? What's the best skill? And I said, you better be able to type. You know, we do have to carry weapons, but I'm telling you, if I ever have to use that weapon, something's gone really way wrong. My job is a human intelligence collector. Ultimately, I'm supposed to spot assess, develop, recruit, handle agents. There is a big difference between a CIA officer and a CIA agent. This drives everybody in the CIA crazy because everyone gets it wrong all the time. So many people have said to me, that, that's pretty cool, you're a CIA agent. And I said, no, actually, I wasn't. So I was a CIA officer, and that's a staff officer. You know, I'm hired by the U.S. government, and I have a particular job. A CIA agent is totally different. A CIA agent is someone we recruit to spy for the United States. So it would be a foreigner, Chinese military officer, a Russian presidential official, an Iranian nuclear scientist, our adversaries, China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, penetrations of terrorist groups, someone who we recruit to become a spy and they provide us information in return. Perhaps we'll pay them, maybe they're doing it for the ideological reasons, but that's what an agent is. There's a huge difference between the two and I do a lot of stuff on CNN, I do a lot of commentary on MSNBC and Fox, 
people call me a CIA agent and it drives me nuts. So I'll still try to correct them if I can. The CIA was created in 1947. America's first kind of national intelligence service born out of the Office of Strategic Services, which was kind of a paramilitary arm used for sabotage and other types of operations behind the scenes in Europe and in the Pacific as well. But when you walk into CIA headquarters, it's pretty dramatic. On the right, there's the Memorial Wall, which is really a sacred place for us. It's where there's 137 stars. These are CIA officers killed in the line of duty, many of whom I know. It's a very personal place, but on the left, there's a biblical verse. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And that's really important because that talks about integrity. And that's one of the key things about CIA officers that I always found, is that there's an incredible sense of honor and integrity. Everyone thinks that's, you know, kind of a sneaky, silent organization, but actually it's a bunch of men and women who have an incredible sense of honor and strong sense of integrity, and it's important that people understand that. CIA is, you know, in its present form has evolved into a, an organization which I think is indispensable, you know, for the security of the United States. I was fortunate to work in two different lines at CIA, the analytic and the operations side, and I really enjoyed both. But ultimately, it's broken down into kind of several key areas. The operational side, we're providing non-public human intelligence for our, our analysts and our policymakers, where analysts sit and they assess a country or a topic based on lots of different intelligence streams. It could be human intelligence, it could be signals intelligence. You're listening to perhaps other countries, officials speak. And there's imagery, satellite imagery, so you're looking at troop dispositions. And then there's open source intelligence, which is a massively expanding field, not just reading newspapers, but everything that's kind of published, non-secret information. So an analyst will write assessments that policymakers will use to determine correct courses of U.S. policy. And then the other sides of the agency, there's, there's a technical side, which has kind of a lot of the cool spy gadgets, satellites and stuff like that. There's a support side, it really made up of men and women who are making the trains run on time. CIA is made up with an, kind of an amazing bunch of men and women doing really different things. I started as an analyst and I wanted to switch over. And so, you know, I didn't quit the CIA, I just, I moved internally. And I think it's a credit that they allowed me to do so. It takes a long time to get cleared and, you know, to pass all the background investigations. So they invest a lot in that. But ultimately, you know, our job is to, you know, as an operations officer, is to, you know, meet another human being. Though there are a lot of misconceptions about CIA work in the media, it is accurate that CIA officers and agents often need to meet in person, covertly. Not everything can be trusted online, so person-to-person communication is still essential. Sometimes you can communicate over technical means, but the best way to get a sense of the spy is to look at them face-to-face. I want to look that agent in the eye and see how they're doing. That human interaction is really important. I want to I look that person right across and see how they're doing, look them in the eye. And that's always been kind of a, a critical component of operations is, is understanding that there is another human right across from you. It's actually really good for that agent as well, the spy. Sometimes they need that personal reinforcement. These people need a huge you know, morale boost, even in that short five or 10 minute meeting. They are committing espionage against their country to work for the United States. They can't tell anybody They can't or shouldn't tell their family or friends. That would be potentially catastrophic. You're acting as their psychologist, psychiatrist, confidant. My role as a case officer was was like going to, you know, not a psych 101 class, a psych 501 class. You have someone's life in your hands. You might have a very limited amount of time to obtain critical information. Maybe it's the talking points for that country's foreign minister's visit for the secretary of state. Maybe it's plans and intentions of a terrorist group who's going to attack the U.S. Embassy somewhere. 
or maybe it's the shipping manifest from uh, you know the North Korean missile program. There's key pieces of information that we need, and ultimately it's that movement from A, where I'm leaving, maybe my apartment or my residence in a foreign country, and and I will, over several hours, go make different stops. Maybe I'll change clothes, maybe I'll get in disguise, maybe I'll take different forms of transportation to ensure no one's following me. The spy, the agent's doing the same thing on his or her side, so ultimately we meet up in that maybe one, two, five, 10, 15, 20 minutes, however it's gonna be. That's the critically dangerous time where we're actually both together. Sometimes we'll have other people on the street trying to watch. If it's a member of a terrorist group, we'll have people armed on the street as well, just to make sure that the operations officer is not ambushed. And it takes careful, meticulous planning. And in my entire career, every one of those, that moment, that last decision point where you're gonna go meet another human being, hopefully that person is still on our side. Hopefully he has not brought his country's counterintelligence service to arrest him. And hopefully I haven't done so on my end. But that time is kind of the most nerve wracking time. And I had a pit in my stomach. If you don't, you're not sharp. You better have that pit in your stomach because the stakes are very high. You better be nervous at that last decision point. Once you commit to meeting that person on the street, one-on-one, it's game on. It's very hard to explain why you're sitting there next to an Iranian intelligence officer. If somehow the police swoop in on you, not sure how to explain that. You meet at the bowling alley? I don't know if that's gonna really work. You do kind of go over a cover story. You will try to have some kind of story to explain why you're together. But there's some people you shouldn't be with. An American official and official of XYZ country, it's gonna be hard to explain that away. We do a lot of this on our own. It's you and that agent and uh, no one else sometimes. You have to have that integrity to practice your tradecraft successfully, obtain the right information. And a lot of times it's you and uh, and hopefully uh, a lot of luck. There's a reason why the espionage business is called the wilderness of mirrors. It's a very complex game of trying to assess the people that we have recruited. There's this huge kind of game, for lack of a better term, it's serious, you know, played with our adversaries, our adversaries, counterintelligence services. I've had agents that have been, that have been flipped and, and if we recruited an agent, perhaps they did get caught, maybe they had cold feet and they admitted it to their, their own country and then they, their, their own country would have said, okay, you're not working for the Americans anymore. You're going to work for us. Maybe provide the Americans bad information, but not tell, you know, the, your, your CIA case officer. And so that's that's kind of the definition of, of turned. That's something that is actually, you know, it's, it's always kind of in the back of our minds because um, you need to always kind of assess and vet your agents to make sure that that has not occurred. And you do so in you know, a variety of means, but ultimately, I think a, a lot of the times uh, there's just that unknown. There's countries that even when they have flipped their, their, you know, our sources, somehow they're caught and they still allow the source to provide good information to us. Because, that, you know, if they weren't, we might detect it. But with, with so, you know, some ultimate gain of maybe they want to identify, you know, the CIA officer. Or maybe they're going to provide a lot of good information and then feed some kind of inaccurate information down the road as well. There's certainly a sick feeling when that occurs. My job as a CIA case officer is not to be friends with my agent. It is a, a an intense relationship. I mean, I talk about in the book, it's almost like a marriage. So, I mean, it, because, because it is it's super intense because you're keeping this person alive. But, you know, I mean, just like in, you know, in, in personal relationships, there's, there's betrayal, there's infidelity. I mean, these things happen. So ultimately, uh, it's just something you got to kind of 
kind of watch out for, but it's, it's not a good feeling when it happens. Our goal is to beat the hostile intelligence service trying to find out who we are and who some of the spies are. If you're a you know, six foot two white guy with tats all over your arms, wearing 5'11 cargo pants and a buzz cut, you kind of look like an American. I want an incredibly ethnically diverse cadre of officers so you stay under the radar. If I'm in a CIA station overseas, we need to meet our agents securely. That means we have to run surveillance detection routes, we have to do everything under the table. And we did it very successfully because especially in the Middle East where someone could wear, you know, an abaya, so they can cover their entire face and perhaps body. Nobody knows who you are. Sounds pretty good to me if you have to go meet an agent. And in the book, I tell this wonderful story about our female operations officers. They were always some of the best handlers because of the male chauvinism and the macho character and attitudes of many of these Middle Eastern security services. They couldn't fundamentally believe that a girl could be an operations officer. Just as highly trained, probably way better than I was. We had a husband and wife tandem team, both of them their exact same training. We we're in a Middle Eastern country and we had a female operations officer going out to meet an agent. We have a kind of a penetration. That means we've recruited someone in the country's intelligence service to tell us these things, like what are they doing? How are they following us? And we get a report that says this female officer was seen on the street conducting an operational act. She gets caught. The Middle Eastern service said, she can't be the spy. She can't be the CIA officer because she's a girl. The Middle Eastern service cannot even fathom that the CIA would send a girl to such operational training. So let's put surveillance and cover her husband, who was like, what the hell did I do? So it was very funny because she actually was still effective on the street while her husband, who also was a CIA officer, then had heavy surveillance and couldn't do anything. The U.S. government, I'm not talking about the CIA, but the U.S. government's most talented, most exceptional, and probably the greatest officer in the history of the United States government's counterterrorism efforts since 9-11 is a very incredibly talented, wonderful female officer. You see at a Dodgers game, you'd have no idea. She is responsible for saving more American lives than we could ever imagine. Downrange will be back after this short break. It's the holiday season. That means a lot of traveling back home, hosting the entire family, and recovering from Christmas shopping. No matter where or how you're hydrating this season, Liquid IV is the hydration brand fueling your well-being. And their hydration multiplier can keep you going through the end of the year and beyond. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness, Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone, all in a single stick. Now it's available in sugar-free. Choose from three delicious flavors, white peach, green grape, and lemon lime. Whether you work out daily or not at all, Liquid IV is for everyone. I use it daily to start my morning. It picks me up and keeps me from dragging. I just tried the sugar-free white peach, and it might be my new favorite. A proprietary amino acid olives blend replaces sugar naturally with the same sweet taste. Grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier sugar-free in bulk nationwide at Costco, or you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code RANGE at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using the promo code RANGE at liquidiv.com. Downrange is sponsored by BetterHelp. 
Do you exchange gift cards, vacations, experiences, donations, or do you focus on enjoying time together? I know I do. Whether or not your family gives gifts during the holidays, you get to define how you give to yourself. And the holidays are a great time to do that. So whether it's by starting therapy, going easier on yourself during the tough moments, or treating yourself to a day of complete rest, remember to give yourself some love this holiday season. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out the brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. In the season of giving, give yourself what you need with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash range today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash range. Now, back to our story. I was born in Greece, so a lot of times people in the Middle East, even though they knew I was affiliated with the U.S. government, they said, well, he's kind of Greek anyway. The Greeks and the Arab world were always very close. And I used that to my advantage. My father came from Greece. My wife also had the same job as I did. She's retired now too, and she's from the Arab world. There's an amazing amount of immigrants who bring incredible talent in terms of languages and cultures. And you find immigrants and immigrant families when they come to the United States are incredibly patriotic. I'm not talking about the political party affiliation they are at all. If you grew up in a certain area and you didn't have the right economic opportunities or there was war, there was, you know, some terrible things you might have seen. If you get to the United States and, you know, everyone can acknowledge that, you know, the U.S. has gone through some struggles over the last couple of years in terms of our cohesion as a country. And, you know, I think that that's okay because we have to kind of grow. And the immigrant communities of America contributed in a tremendous fashion to national security, and they certainly did at CIA. I want to be able to beat our adversaries. You know, when we talk about diversity and inclusion, like that's our secret weapon. There's all these controversies now in the United States about this and about being woke and all that stuff, and that, that drives me nuts. The core business that I had to accomplish, which was to run, recruit, and handle agents. Even today, when you think about what's happening in Afghanistan, an amazing part of this story of the airlift, of the extraction of our Afghan Americans who were in Kabul, but also our, our Afghan allies who helped us so much in the war, is that there's going to be a refugee population that arrives in America in rather large numbers, and they're going to be an amazing addition. What they did to help us in Afghanistan was extraordinary. I was a base chief there. 2011 to 2012, I was there for a year running a CIA base in eastern Afghanistan along the Pakistan-Afghanistan border in, in Paktika province. And so there's only a couple Americans and there was several hundred of our indigenous Afghan units. Some of those folks probably will end up coming to the United States and you know I'd be happy to welcome them as neighbors because I think they're going to be an incredible addition. Mark Polymeropoulos ran one of the bases in Afghanistan from 2011 to 2012. It was a stressful year, and most of his team were separated from their families. Many of the leadership principles Mark lives by were put to the test that year. Afghanistan is actually a, a country of, of remarkable beauty. Beautiful mountains, snow in the winter. In the summer, it's, there's some green, but you know, very similar to the terrain of New Mexico. Very rocky cold in the winter, you know, hot in the summer. I was there for a year, a very remote area along the Pakistan-Afghanistan border. 
Paktika province, looking essentially into the city in Pakistan called Angarada. Incredibly remote. It was an area in which there was kind of, you know, we called rat lines where insurgents would cross over from Pakistan and Afghanistan. So our base was really in a strategic area. It was a place of incredible beauty. There's never anyone who came to our base who would say somehow, you know, somehow wistfully, I wish that this wasn't a war-ravaged country. And I certainly wish that wasn't landmines everywhere left over from the Soviet time. If you're going to visit, you know, some of our frontline units, for example, right along the border, there was always that possibility. There was danger around every corner. There was never a time I didn't look around and say, wow, this place is gorgeous, and then realize that it could kill you anytime as well. Because it was so dangerous, we always arrived in the middle of the night. You land at the HLZ, at the, at the helicopter landing zone, and we're getting rocketed all the time by Al-Qaeda and the Taliban from right across in Pakistan by 107 millimeter rockets. So literally, it's a sprint from the HLZ into the secure area where we lived, which was fortified to resist rocket fire. You're going from a helo flight in, you know you're going into a war zone, but it's, uh, it's pretty stark when you get there and you get rushed right into the secure area. We lived for some time in an old, old fort. We nicknamed it the Alamo. It looked like something out of, you know, Fort Apache. But it's, you know, mud huts and some fortified, more secure areas, and you feel like you're on the moon. You know, Afghanistan was just this wild ride day after day of trying to do the right thing, trying to protect America, certainly gathering intelligence against Al-Qaeda and the Taliban and groups that were trying to do, you know, not only U.S. troops harm there, but also preventing attacks against the homeland. The year goes by relatively quickly because you're busy. This is not a leisurely posting. Our job is to recruit agents to what we call put targets on the X for removal from the battlefield. So it was a very specific goal. And so that kind of made that easy that year because it was singular focused. There was bad guys out there in the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, and it was our job to find them. I had a really dedicated team. It was easy for me as a leader to get everyone motivated, but it was really important for me to keep them healthy, not only physical, but mental health. I mean, you're away from your family for a year. One of the things that I would always give the base officers, my mini motivational speech, just that if we serve there for a year, when you go home, you're going to walk tall. Not many people have filled those shoes of volunteering to go to one of the most dangerous places on the planet. There, you know, there's an old Time Magazine article and that said that our base was, at that time, was the, the most dangerous place on Earth. And we wore that badge very proudly. Unfortunately, there are several CIA officers who were actually killed there as well. We lost a lot of our indigenous units there, and our, the commander of the indigenous unit, as well as some of the other, other soldiers were killed on, on my watch. And so it was a very dangerous place, but we wore that as a badge of honor. And as I told these folks, you'll always walk tall after your year of service there, no matter what, no one can ever take that from you. And I feel that today, you know, even about, you know, what I did as well, I'm very proud of our time there. Downrange will be back after this short break. It's not a bird. It's not a plane. It's a ball trimmer sent from space. Gentlemen, our friends over at Manscaped have been working night and day to bring you the below-the-waist grooming experience like none other with their brand-new performance package, 5.0 Ultra. Featuring the Lawnmower 5.0, we're talking about a next-generation trimmer with interchangeable blade heads for whatever shave your mind can imagine. Upgrade your grooming game to the Ultra Spare this year by going to manscaped.com for 20% off, plus free shipping with the code TDDOWNRANGE. Again, that's TDDOWNRANGE. 
downrange. High tech for low places, Manscaped. AI is cool, but I think this might be the biggest technological advancement the world has seen in the past decade. Every man knows how scary it can get when going for a close shave below the belt. That's why I trust Manscaped for all my sensitive areas. It's great for my confidence. Manscaped even threw in two free gifts to their Performance Package 5.0, the Manscaped Boxers 2.0, and the Shed 2.0 Travel Bag. Bring your travel and comfort game to another level. I love the Weed Whacker 2.0. It also features skin-safe technology, which helps prevent nicks, snags, and tugs in those delicate holes. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code TDDOWNRANGE at manscaped.com. That's 20% off plus free shipping with the code TDDOWNRANGE at manscaped.com. I can promise you've never seen a ball trimmer look like a spaceship. Get yours today from our folks at Manscaped. Now, back to our story. Thinking back on my career, you know, again, as, as, I, as I mentioned before, I started off as an analyst, but I, I moved over to the operations side. And there was something that really kind of hit me early on in my career that I think really defines what being a CI operations officer is all about in terms of responsibility and, and in terms of the need to kind of compose yourself with honor and integrity. I was handling, I hadn't recruited, but I was handling an agent. And this agent was a, you know, we call it a penetration. He was a member of a, an Arab government. I was training him in Europe on a communication system. And so this is just, you know, on how we were going to communicate with each other. He lived in a very harsh counterintelligence environment. I was going to be in the same country with him, but we wouldn't really ever very rarely meet face to face. So we're going over our protocols, what we call tradecraft, how we run surveillance detection routes. You have to begin this long circuitous route with lots of stops to ultimately get to meet your agent, but ensure that nobody's following you. So we're going over all this, what we call tradecraft. And he stops me and he, he takes me aside and he said, Mark, I just want to make sure you understand something. He said, you know, I know that you're going to think of me maybe every couple of days or weeks, but not all that much. I know you have other duties and I know that we're going to see each other maybe once every three weeks, once a month or, or, or using these communications procedures. But he said, make no mistake that I'm going to think of you every single day. Because if you make one mistake, not only am I going to die, but my whole family's going to die. And I was totally taken aback by that. It's in the book because it's meaningful, but I told this story to every operations officer who ever worked for me after that because that's the sense of responsibility that we had. I was a fairly junior officer. I probably wasn't more than 31, 32 years old, but I had someone's life in my hands. I knew I had to be almost perfect. I think it's great that the agency allowed me to tell this story because this is the essence of what we do. These are agents who, for several different reasons, might decide to work for the U.S. government. Maybe it's ideological. They come from a terrible regime, or maybe it's, you know, in the old days it was communism versus capitalism. Maybe they want to send their kids to school in the United States, or maybe there's financial reasons. Maybe it's back to the great motivation of just loving America and kind of, you know, our, our ideals and, and our democratic norms. This is keeping someone alive who's put their faith in the United States government. And I love this story. It's a true story. The story ends really well because this individual did work for us inside his country and then got out and he's, he's resettled. That's probably one of the reasons the agency agreed to allow me to talk about it, even though I don't give a whole bunch of details, but ultimately he did his part and he was resettled safely in another country. And I think of him all the time and he gave me such a place to, you know, where I could ground myself. 
I'm a human being too. So I get up in the morning and it doesn't matter where I am. And, you know, so my kid's not doing well in school or he's, you know, the sports team is struggling or my wife's mad at me because I was, you know, didn't take the garbage out. And there's all these, but then what snaps you back to reality is I have something to do today and I've got to do it perfectly because this individual is counting on me to keep him alive. I was posted in Kandahar, Afghanistan for several weeks in early 2002 and I was sent into Helmand province. We were trying to find a Taliban high-value target. And I was co-located with a special forces team and a couple of things happened. So I'm sitting there in Helmand province and they hadn't seen someone from outside Afghanistan since the Soviets invaded in 1979. So they actually asked if we were Soviet. But ultimately, I'm sitting cross-legged across from this village elder. Something incredible happened. So we had an interpreter there and told me and the special forces captain that actually this village elder had betrayed us and that there was going to be an ambush against us. Talking about, you know, crazy leadership on the fly. I think I had mentioned to, to the village elder that there was a AC-130, a, a gunship aircraft above us, and that if anything happened to us, it would, things would not go so well for the village. And so it was an incredible kind of test for me as a leader. But also think about that interpreter. That's the kind of person that we're trying to actually get out of Afghanistan now. He saved my life. So the current situation in Afghanistan with the takeover of the Taliban is, you know, is particularly perilous for those Afghans who helped the United States government. They could have been interpreters for the U.S. military or perhaps the intelligence community. They could be commandos, fighters. They could be, you know, individuals who worked on projects for AID, for the Agency for International Development, where they could have worked at the U.S. Embassy. Anyone who had an affiliation with the United States government is at grave risk. That is what is of particular concern to a lot of us who is there because, you know, they really dedicated themselves to, to the United States government. But even more so, you know, diving down more deeply, there are those Afghan fighters, you know, our indigenous units, again, from the special operations or the intelligence community, who really fought with us. One of the unique aspects of, of my job there was that we only were a handful of Americans living with hundreds of these Afghan commandos. And so, you know, they were our brothers in arms. I only was there for a year. These Afghan units, these Afghans who fought with us, they were in combat for some 10 to 15 years. It's an extraordinary amount of time. They never left. That was their home, and they were loyal to us every single day. And so that's why I think this situation in Afghanistan from the veteran community or for someone like myself, a retired CIA officer from intelligence or folks from special operations, you know, we're so passionate about this because these were people who really helped us. And we lived with them side by side, ate with them, went out and patrol with them, sat around the campfire every night with them. And so, you know, pretty extraordinary heroic bunch. But they were in combat every day for probably over a decade, all of these, you know, or more. A lot of these folks we knew and, you know, we cycled in and out, but they never left. And so it's, I think it's incumbent on us to get them out of harm's way because they are going to be marked for death. There's no doubt in my mind, if we leave them behind, they'll be killed. There's a feeling of, of betrayal a bit because I think we had an opportunity to get a lot of these folks out. There's two things here. One is there's the policy decision to withdraw fully from Afghanistan. I don't necessarily agree with it. I think we should have left a residual force of perhaps two to 3,000, but okay, I'm not the commander in chief. But if you're going to leave, and that was the decision that both former President Trump and President Biden both agreed on something. If you're gonna do that, you better plan to get all our allies out and their families. And so we're talking 150,000 Afghans. And that's where the United States government really fell. There is a kind of a pretty dramatic error there because as you see, we're not gonna get everyone out. In terms of planning, in terms of expediting the process of getting these folks their special immigrant visas, it was pretty poor, and I think there's going to be a lot of congressional hearings on this after action reports, but it's not, it has not been, a, it's, been, it's been a very proud moment seeing what the U.S. military is doing right now, 
our brave kind of Marines and soldiers on the ground, they're doing heroes work trying to save our allies. But did we really need to have this kind of situation? Because this is a, uh, this has been pretty messy. You know, in the book, I talk about CIA operations. And, and again, I go back to my time in Afghanistan. A young boy had stepped on a landmine, an old landmine outside our base, and his leg was blown off and he was dying. And in our base, we had our operations officers, our paramilitary officers, that's the tip of the spear. Those are the fighter pilots. And then we had a lot of support personnel, such as what we call a doc, but in essence, it's a medic. He's a physician's assistant, he's a nurse. And this physician's assistant ran out and saved this boy's life. He's bleeding out and the physician's assistant who actually happened to be at CIA, he was a special forces medic. He's also a nurse in Baltimore in an inner city hospital. So he knew trauma medicine. He saved this young boy's life. This physician's assistant is never gonna get credit if we take out high value targets. He's never gonna get credit if we recruit incredible sources that provide information. But this person who is in essence as part of the support personnel saved a little boy's life. And I was really emotional when I kind of thanked everybody and I, you know, and I wrote him up for an award. There are people at this base who are just as important, more important, but certainly just as important as our fighter pilots, the case officers who are on the front lines. You wanna celebrate them, celebrate their successes, integrate them into your, your ops planning or just your planning. And I think that when you get to be a mature leader, you actually understand this so much more. You cannot favor your all-stars. Being a good leader is hard, especially when situations are stressful or uncertain. When you're responsible for other people's lives, the stakes are high. In industry, there's a misconception that management equals leadership. That couldn't be farther from the truth. Management is following a set plan. You have a plan that's been directed from above and you meet your technical cost and schedule goals and you know your product comes out the other end and you get your bonus. But leadership, especially in stressful situations when, when lives are on the line, when your unit has to complete that mission, and you need your people to all align together and go in the exact same direction, that's where, to me, leadership takes hold because you have to have that level of trust, especially on small teams, especially in special operations. You have to have that trust amongst the team that the leader is gonna take care of his guys. I will complete the mission though I be the lone survivor. I will never leave a comrade to fall into the hands of the enemy. Those tenets of the Ranger Creed, those stanzas of the Ranger Creed, those are important. They allow you to get so much more out of your, your operators because they know you won't leave them behind. They know you're gonna take care of them. They know at the end of the day, if we have the mission to do and the lowest private is the only survivor that he's gonna complete that mission. As a leader, you're on stage all the time. All eyes are going to be upon you. And we're all humans, so this is what you have to battle against. I mean, it's, it's, it's as simple as if you have 200 people in your unit, you're walking up and down the hall and you see someone and maybe you're thinking about, I gotta get home at 5.30 tonight because my kid's got a little league game. And you don't say hi. You might not see that person for three weeks. All they think of is, wow, the boss hates me. And you're like, oh crap, I gotta get back to the little league game. When I say win an Oscar, you are on stage all the time. Just be cognizant of that. We were in the Middle East and I was at a US government facility it was attacked by Al Qaeda. It was about a 20 minute gun battle outside. It felt like about four hours. My wife was also an officer of CIA. So we're both in this facility. We lost communication with the outside guard force. Grenades are landing on our roof. We hear the automatic weapons fire outside. This might not end well. Everyone put on body armor. I was opening our, our safe where we had our weapons. My heart rate went from zero to 100. 
I was flat out admittedly terrified. And I'm trying to calm myself to spin this combination lock and I'm just, it's just not working. When I finally get it open and we hand out the weapons, we position everyone. The office is breached by the Al-Qaeda terrorists. My kids actually watched this happen. They were at a school close by and they actually saw this happen. And they were also with a whole bunch of their friends whose parents also were in the facility too. It was a, it was a really bad time. And they thought my wife and I were dead. There was a response from kind of local security forces. The car bomb hit the back gate, didn't go off. Terrorists were all killed and we lived. What is remarkable about that is in the after action report is I sat down with all the officers. Each of them said, Mark, it's amazing how calm you look. I was terrified. I literally thought we were gonna die that day. I could barely breathe, but I won an Oscar that day. And what it did is it gave all the people in the office a sense of calm and a sense of reassurance so they could position themselves. We also had to start burning classified and, and there's some things we had to do in destroying equipment in case the United States government facility was breached. And so ultimately, you know, I won an Oscar that day. I wasn't there saying, oh, I can't wait till they break the door down so we can kill them all. Kind of the opposite. I was like, sure hope they don't come through that door. At a time when you got to make a decision, when times are tough, everybody's going to be looking at you. I could have said to my team that day, hey, this is a really bad situation, but we're going to be okay. But I'm telling you, like, if you all are scared, I'm scared too. That's okay to say. So that's not showing weakness. That's just showing some honesty. If I had said to them as grenades are getting tossed on our roof and we know someone's getting shot outside, if I say, hey, don't worry about it, everybody, that's not really honest. I won an Oscar that day. Thank God nothing bad happened. But that's a principle I think that a lot of people understand. We'd like to thank Mark Polymeropoulos for sharing his story with us. If you enjoy Mark's story and you'd like to hear more, Mark's new book, Clarity and Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the CIA, is available now. Again, I'm Rich Chapa, and this is Downrange. Thanks for listening. Range is a production of Tenderfoot TV and Telegraph Creative. Our hosts are former Navy SEAL Remy Adeleke and former Army Ranger Rich Chapa. Our senior producers are Meredith Stedman and Mike Rooney. From Tenderfoot TV, executive producers are Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay. From Telegraph Creative, executive producers are Cliff Sims and Darren McBurnett. From Extreme Concepts, executive producer is Landon Ash. Co-executive producer is Remy Adeleke. Produced by Eric Quintana, Tracy Kaplan, and Jamie Albright. Dramatization casting and directing by Greg Cooler. Sound designed by Cooper Skinner. Mix and mastered by Cooper Skinner. Original music by Makeup and Vanity Set. Additional production by Christina Dana. Marketing and branding by Telegraph Creative. This episode features the song Fire and Smoke, written by Benjamin Rubino, Bo Steele, and Stacey Stavola, performed by the band Steele courtesy of Fire River Records. 
Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum and Grace Royer from UTA, Ryan Nord, Jesse Nord, and Matthew Papa from the Nord Group, Beck Media and Marketing. Visit us at downrangepod.com or on social media at Downrange Podcast. Thanks for listening. Downrange is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you exchange gift cards, vacations, experiences, donations, or do you focus on enjoying time together? I know I do. Whether or not your family gives gifts during the holidays, you get to define how you give to yourself. And the holidays are a great time to do that. So whether it's by starting therapy, going easy on yourself during the tough moments, or treating yourself to a day of complete rest, Remember to give yourself some love this holiday season. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out the brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. In the season of giving, give yourself what you need with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash range today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash range.